0: Hebrews 8 verse 1, hear the word of God. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth... He would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises." And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, what I want to do this week is provide really an overview of what I just read uh, in preparation for uh, taking, I don't know how many more Sundays, anywhere from one to probably four after this one, to deal with the end of this chapter 8, this new covenant. Uh, you'll notice, beginning in verse 8, uh, um, The author of Hebrews quotes the prophet Jeremiah who uh, lays out, laid out uh, in his day, this prophecy of the New Covenant which now the author of Hebrews lays out uh, and says is. And so what I want to do uh, in the weeks to follow is to take this, most especially to consider these particular promises in the New Covenant. For instance, in the middle of verse 10 where he writes, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I want to ask the question, what does that mean? If we're in this new covenant, uh, what does it mean? That the very law of God is written on our minds and in uh, our hearts. Secondly, that little expression, this promise of the new covenant, that I will be their God and they shall be my people. What does that mean? What does it mean that God, God Almighty, God the one and only, is your God? and that you are his. What does that mean? And then this expression, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. Do you know God? It says in the New Covenant, uh, everyone who's in the New Covenant will know God and be able to say, I know him. There's an intimacy there. And so the question is, what does that mean and how does that manifest itself in our lives? And then finally the last uh, one, this verse 12, For I'll be merciful toward their iniquities and remember their sins no more. What does it mean in the context of our lives? How do we live when we know that God does not remember our sins? How does that impact our lives? So that's, that's what's coming. What I want to do this week is set all that up, alright? Alright. Uh, and, and 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 to do that, I have the same um, goal, I think, same desire as the author of Hebrews does, and he has the same desire that God does. Is where, and I got it from him, and he got it from God. Uh, which is that we would have the full assurance of hope. That's really what this is all about. He's talking so much about Jesus to them, and thus to us, so that... Uh, we wouldn't drift, we wouldn't neglect the gospel that we've given, this great salvation, but rather that we would live, he says in chapter 6, with this full assurance of hope to the end, so that we would not be sluggish, that is, we wouldn't be passive about this, but very zealous, we wouldn't be passive about this, we wouldn't be sluggish, but rather that we'd be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So all of this is directed at that. All of this is directed at, at the end of this, hopefully, our hope in Christ will increase to such, to such a degree that will help us, at least throughout this week, uh, in order to persevere in faith and patience uh, so that we may be counted among those who inherit these promises of the law being written on our hearts, of God being our God, of knowing Him, of being able to live with the knowledge that God doesn't remember our sins. Alright? That's the blessing of the new covenant. So that's, that's what I want to do. That's the reason I want to do it. Now, when the author of Hebrews cites this covenant, uh, this new covenant, there must be an old covenant. And that reminds us that God works in the lives of people on the basis of covenant. On the basis of these agreements that he makes that are binding agreements that are solemn agreements, that are to be unbreakable agreements. And it's these agreements that he makes where God promises various things and promises that he himself, by his own name, will be faithful to the things which he promises. But always in the midst of these promises and these covenants are stipulations or things which we must obey. For instance, we can see even uh, in the creation account how there was a covenantal relationship, a covenant between God and Adam, for instance. Because God had made a promise and had stipulations uh, to Adam. The stipulation was you could eat of every tree except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that was the very one tree that... um, that God says, don't eat, don't eat from that one. It wasn't that the fruit was poison. It's simply the fact that God was saying, by not eating, you will be expressing the fact that you know that I, as God, am the one who determines what's good and evil. If you eat of that tree, it's as if you're saying, I want to be like God. And I get to define what good is good and evil, and God said not to, but I say, it's good to. So you, you know the situation there. But, but the, 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 the end result of that, God says, if you eat of that tree, you'll surely die, that is, you'll be cut off from life physical life, spiritual life, be cut off with this intimate relationship, knowing of God. The implicit promise in all of that was that if they didn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would live. Because you remember, when they did eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and were to be banished from the garden, God said, get them out of here so that they don't eat from the tree of life. And so he moved them away, because if they wouldn't, have sinned, the tree of life would have been theirs. So the blessing was life, the curse was death, the the stipulation was, don't eat, that is, trust me as God. Now you know what happened, Uh, what happened, Adam and Eve sinned and were banished from the garden, but in the midst of that you remember that God made a promise, and that promise that he made uh, uh, summarized was this, that one would come from the seed of the woman whose heel would be bruised But he would crush the head of the serpent. That he would come on behalf of God, on behalf of these people, and destroy this evil one. That was the promise. And from then on out, God began to be faithful to that promise. Do you remember that that God then made a covenant with Noah? Um, The the world had gone south after the sin of Adam and Eve, as you remember. And the scripture says that the thoughts and the iniquities, the thoughts and the intentions of, of their hearts were evil continuously. And so God judged humanity at that point but saved Noah and his family. Put him in the ark and they were saved. Uh, at the end of that, God made a covenant with Noah and said, I promise I won't flood the world like this again. And I'm going to give you my sign, this rainbow, and every time you see it, that will be a reminder that the world won't be destroyed by flood. I'm going to preserve it. And of course, he would need to preserve it. And the reason he would need to preserve it was that he had made a promise. And that promise one, was that there's going to come one from the seed of the woman who crushed the head of the serpent. And if he had destroyed everyone, there wouldn't have been any woman from whom this one would come. Well, even after that situation, you remember, things didn't get any better. And and human beings, as they began to repopulate uh, the earth, uh, were no more godly than they had been uh, before the days of Noah. In fact, it was expressed in this tower that was built, the Tower of Babel, that that they had built for their own name rather than for the glory of God. And so God judged in that setting, but he split people up in different languages and so forth and so on. And then we find God coming to this man named Abraham, with whom then he made covenant. And he made promises to Abraham, who became Abraham, you remember, and the promises that he made to him were that, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you um, a nation, Therefore, I will give you descendants. I will bless you. Whoever blesses you will be blessed. Whoever curses you will be cursed. And from your seed, from your family, every family, every people on the face of the earth will be blessed. That was God's promise. And Abraham believed God, and so God received him, counted his faith, counted him, therefore, as righteous on the basis of his faith. And then said to Abraham... Now walk blamelessly before me. He had made a promise then to Abraham as well by saying, Your seed will be so great. However, one day it will find itself enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, after which they will be delivered. And in a sense, implicitly, I will make a nation out of them. And that's precisely what happened. You remember that the Israelites ended up uh, providentially in Egypt, they were enslaved. And for 400 years, God sent Moses to deliver them, pulled them out, brought them to Mount Sinai, and there, another covenant, another promise that God was making to be faithful. And this was a covenant with Moses and the people, uh, through Moses, for the people, that, that, that was a covenant really of law. And he gave them civil laws, which would govern them as a nation. And those civil laws were based on these moral laws which he gave to them on how they were to relate to God and how they were to relate to each other. And that law can be summarized in this statement that they were to love God with all of their heart, soul, mind and strength and they were to love their neighbor as themselves. That was the very law of God. That's how you're to live. And God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. In fact, he made a great promise to them in Exodus in chapter 19. In verse 6, we read uh, this promise of God. He says to them, verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He says, listen, here's my promise to you. If you keep my covenant, you'll be my treasured possession. And I'm God, and everything's mine. But you'll be my very special possession. You'll be my treasured possession. You'll be a, 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 a holy nation. All the nations of the world set you apart to be mine. You'll be a kingdom of priests. That you will just simply have intercession with me. That you'll be able to come to me as the whole kingdom. Because you'll be a royal priesthood. That was his promise. But they needed to obey Him. They needed to, to obey His covenant. And God said, You'll be my people. I'll be your God. I'll live in your very midst. And so He established a way that a holy God could live in the midst of an unholy people. And He did that by way of, of, of mediators, priests, and sacrifices and a place where God Himself would dwell. In the early days of this nation, when they couldn't build a real temple because they didn't have a real place to land, they built a tent, a tabernacle, And in it was a very special place, a most holy place. And there was the Ark of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant. And on the top of that Ark of the Covenant was the seat of mercy. And God was said to dwell uh, above that seat between these figurine angels that were carved there. And God said, listen, when you disobey, I want you to make sacrifice." In fact, he says, just because of your general sinfulness, if I'm going to live in your midst, there's going to be, need to be sacrifices going on all the time. So there were daily sacrifices always before the Lord. There were weekly sacrifices. There were monthly sacrifices. There were yearly festivals that would be held. And most especially, that most important day of the year, the Day of Atonement, when an animal would be slain, And it's blood taken by the high priest, not just any priest, but the high priest chosen by God. And he would go into this most holy place and he would sprinkle the blood right there so that the sins of the people would be atoned for. God would say, you've sinned, but rather than taking your life, I'll take the life of the substitute and this priest will be the go-between. He'll bring the blood to me in this special place and I'll be there. I'll receive it. Your sins will be forgiven. He said, that's my promise to you. Now be faithful to me. And then later on, as kings came in on the scene, he made a promise to this one king named David, and he said, "David, on your throne will always be seated. Uh, on the throne will always be seated one from your family. In fact, there is one special one who will come and be seated for all eternity. Covenant with David. But if you know the Bible and you know the history of Israel, you know things didn't go well for them." that even though God had made, him, made them his special people and, 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 and made this covenant with them, and he was faithful to it, they were unfaithful. Uh, they did not love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. In fact, other gods would be worshipped even in Israel, even in Jerusalem. In fact, at one point in time, when the prophet uh, Elijah was active, there were 850 prophets, of foreign gods in Israel. They were unfaithful to that covenant. And there were times when the priests were unfaithful and didn't make sacrifices. There were times when kings were unfaithful and didn't rule the people righteously. There were times when the prophets were unfaithful and didn't speak the truth of God. And there were times even when sacrifices were being made, that they were being done in a ritualistic fashion, that God said, this makes me sick, because your heart isn't in this. He says, really what I desire from you is obedience. I don't really desire the blood of bulls and goats. What I really desire is for you to be obedient, for you to be faithful to this covenant. And God had said to them, if you obey this covenant, I'll bless you, but if you don't obey this covenant, then you'll be cursed. Things got so bad that the prophet Hosea came and said to the people, you're you're like a prostitute because you've wandered off so They've been so unfaithful to God. It's as if you've prostituted yourself to other gods. The prophet Isaiah came on the scene and said, Listen, out in your barns, your ox and your donkey, they know you, but you don't even know God, the very one who's provided for you. So the prophet uh, Jeremiah comes on the scene. He's known as the weeping prophet because he prophesied at a very dreadful time in the history of Israel. And he had a very hard word, especially in the middle, in the beginning of his time with them. Good King Josiah had had come during that time period he needed. He'd found the book of the law. He'd found the word of God hidden away. And he read it and he said, Wow, let's do this. And they began to do this. They celebrated the Passover and so forth. But yet still the people's hearts weren't in it. And Jeremiah had to bring this word that says, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. The temple is going to be destroyed. And it was. And he says, you're going to be exiled. You're going to be moved out of Jerusalem. That's the very curse, the very judgment of God because of your sin. But of course, God had made a promise. He said, wait a minute. One's going to come from the family of Abraham and the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And I can't destroy them utterly. And so Jeremiah had this word of restoration. He says, but after 70 years, you'll miraculously come back. And they did. And the city was rebuilt and the temple was rebuilt, but not to its former glory. In fact, the people still continued to sin even after they came back. And so they found themselves again and again under the thumb of other nations. But then one day came and there was this young girl named Mary. She just happened to be from the family of David. And an angel came to her and said, you're going to be with child. And she was. And she gave birth and he was Emmanuel, God, with us. Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. And that young boy grew and he was baptized and the Spirit of God came upon him. And he went through the villages and the towns and the countryside and he began to proclaim this good news of the kingdom of God and he healed and he taught and a day came when he was being betrayed by one of his very own and he met with his other disciples, his other friends for this Passover meal and they had eaten and he had taken bread and he had given it to them and then he pulled this cup, the cup of blessing that was on the table and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, if they had been thinking, they would have been thinking, Jeremiah. That's what he said. He said that a new covenant... uh, is coming. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. A new one. Wow. And they should begin to expect all of these great promises that were made. Now, you may want to ask the question, why a new one? Why a new covenant? Why not just continue on in the old covenant? Why didn't Jesus pick up the cup and said, You know, I'm continuing on the old covenant, just better than it's ever been. You know? Why why a new covenant? Well, on the one hand, because the old was always expecting to be replaced by the new, it simply pointed, the way the author of Hebrews puts it in verse 5 here, he said, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. All of the, all of the history in ancient Israel and all the things that God provided there were copies and shadows. And every time you have a copy of something, you know there's an original somewhere. And every time you see a shadow, you know there's a reality. And, and what he placed before them during those centuries were copies and shadows. Things that reflect real and original. And so the priests were copies and shadows of the real priest who would come. Yes, they were go-betweens, but, 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 but they were just simply a shadow of the real thing. Uh, the sacrifices, shadows of the real thing. This tent, tabernacle, a shadow of the real place in heaven. And so they would be replaced this by this new covenant. Have you ever wondered how it is that an old testament believer would have assurance? Where would an Old Testament believer find assurance? Now, I have to be honest with you, it's hard for us to comprehend because we didn't live there. And when I read the Old Testament, I don't, I don't really have enough information to reconstruct everything in my own mind, all the smells and the feels and what it would be like to get up in the morning as an Old Testament believer uh, and get on my donkey. That doesn't even sound good, does it? But what, how culturally, how to make that fit and feel. But I think it must have gone something like this, that... To live in the presence of God and to know that you're unholy and that God is holy and you need someone to make intercession for you. You need someone to go before you. You would go to this priest who is just like you. And you know that he had no more right to be in the presence of God than you did because he was a sinner too. And Yet God said to do that. So you'd trust that when he made sacrifice for his sin that made him acceptable to God. And then you'd trust that he would take the blood of that animal on your behalf and he would go and sprinkle it in this little room that you'd never seen the inside of. And he'd sprinkle that blood on this seat of this Ark of the Covenant that you've never seen. And that God, who was dwelling there, though you'd never seen him, would accept that sacrifice on your behalf. You'd trust this priest. The problem with that is he's just like you, and you know him. I mean, you play on the softball team. You know, you know his kids, and it's just kind of strange. But why does he get to do that? And why does God accept him in that role? But, but God said to, so you'd trust his word, and that would bring a measure of assurance. But it seems to me that would bring about as much assurance as seeing a shadow of a reality. You know, if you're a little kid and you get lost in the mall, And you're upset about that because you're not with your mom and you're scared. You begin to run around the store and all of a sudden you see a reflection of your mom in the window. That would give a certain sense of assurance. But not as much as when you'd go and actually see your mom and grab her leg. And then she'd spank you. See, the reality is, brings more assurance than the shadow. But the shadow brings some. Or, if you were an Old Testament believer and you had sinned and you were bringing your sacrifice to God, you would, you would lean against this animal unblemished and you'd confess your sins on it and you'd go, God said to do this. I don't know how this goat's taking my sin, but God said to do this, so here you go sin. Here's all my anger and all my impatience and so forth and so on. Now I'm putting it on you and giving you to the priest. He's going to kill you. And God is going to take that as me. Okay. He had a shadow. And he's going to take it into this place that the people built, whether it be the tabernacle or the temple. And you know, I know the guy who, who built the poles that go around the square in the Holy of Holies and A shadow, some measure of assurance. But you see, when the new covenant comes, the copy leaves, the original comes. When the new covenant comes, you see, the the, the reality that's being shadowed comes. And the original and the reality is is Jesus. And what the scripture tells us about him, we already know. We've already worked our ways through some of this. For instance, in Hebrews in chapter 2, in verse 17, the scripture says of Jesus, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. You see, that's Jesus, that's the reality. The, the, the priest, the sacrifice, just a shadow, he's the reality. You see, our assurance comes not when we look at a priest that looks just like us, who behaves just like us, not when we look at a goat, but when we look at when we look at Jesus, you see, that's the assurance. He's the real thing. And he's a human being, not a goat. And not only is he a human being, he's the very Son of God, which means his life is worth us all. See, that goat, I have to really take by faith, because that goat's not even a dog. You know, if it was a dog, you know, it could be a dog lover. I, I've never met a goat lover. Maybe there are some, at least not in our culture. Um, but, but but it's just a goat. What's it worth? The goat. But this is the very Son of God. And when he takes his life and he gives it. When he takes his blood and he sprinkles it, what could be more valuable? And he's a priest, he's a go-between. He's the very one that God will accept. Surely God will accept him. I wonder about that priest friend of mine, but but but, but this Jesus Surely God will accept his own son. He's perfect. There's no reason for the father not to accept the son as priest on my behalf. And then in chapter 6 and verse 19, we read this for this, for we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now Jesus goes behind the curtain. And chapter 8 says, the curtain he goes behind isn't that curtain in that tabernacle built by human hands. It isn't that curtain uh, that he goes behind in that temple built by human hands. Uh, He goes into the very holy place of heaven. Wow. That's better. That works much better. He goes into the very immediate presence of God in the holy of holies in heaven. And that's where he sprinkles his blood. That's why it's so effective. Everything else pointed to that. Had he not come and done that, none of these other sacrifices would mean a thing. They're all looking at that. So an Old Testament believer has to have assurance in the shadow. And now, where does our assurance come? This is why it's so much better. It's so much better, you see, because it's in Jesus. And when you and I begin to doubt, where do we look? I don't look at some guy that I went to school with who just happens to be a Levite and is a priest. I don't look at my favorite unblemished goat out there and say, can't wait to get you sacrificed. Right? I don't go down the street and see this building that people built and and I know. No, we look to Jesus. The perfect high priest. The perfect sacrifice the one who went to the perfect place, right in the presence of God. Now notice that the author of Hebrews says in verse 6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Did you hear what he's saying there? He's saying there must have been some fault with the first covenant in order for there to be the need for a second covenant, right? He says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And so you'd think if this new covenant's going to come along, it would correct the fault of the first covenant, or it wouldn't do us any good. Right? Are you with me? Hello? There you go. Thank you. Now notice the fault, verse eight. He says, For he finds fault with them. Interestingly, he doesn't say he finds fault with it. He's finding fault with them. And here's how he goes on. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they, this is the them that we've found fault with, for they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. The fault wasn't with God. The fault wasn't with the provisions. The fault was with them. They were unfaithful. And therefore, the old covenant was neglected by them. So they did not receive the blessings. Now the new covenant is coming along. And the new covenant coming along in Jesus has exact, the exact remedy for the fault of the old covenant. And do you know what the remedy for the fault of the Old Covenant is? I'll give you a hint. It's the answer to every Christian question. Jesus. Yeah. He's the remedy. Why? Because the fault was with them. They didn't obey. They weren't faithful. And so Jesus comes to do what? To be faithful. He comes to be the perfect, faithful High Priest. The perfect faithful Mediator, He comes to represent us perfectly with his life and death before God. And so every provision of the covenant he keeps for us. And I have to be honest with you. If the Bible didn't say that, I don't think I would ever think it up or have the capacity to believe it. God says, here's how this new covenant is going to work. Because the old one had a fault. The fault was with the people. They didn't obey. They weren't faithful. So now this one that's going to come to mediate the new covenant, he's going to live it for you. He's going to take that end as well. He's going to obey perfectly. Every place where you have sinned, he didn't. Every place where you've been unfaithful to God in your life, he wasn't. And thus, we enter the new covenant in Him. The thing that's new about the new covenant is Jesus. It isn't necessarily the provisions. The provisions that says that I'll put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. That may have a a newness about it, but but the truth is that the Old Covenant was to be personal and internal and affectionate as well. They were to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind and strength. Their inclinations were supposed to be to God. They were to be circumcised of the heart. It was a, a matter of the heart. God never liked external only stuff. Everything external was the point of that which was true in the context of their hearts. That was true in the Old Covenant... It didn't bring them blessing because they were unfaithful. And so he now he says, I'm going to bring this one who is my very heart and he'll cleanse you as well. It was the very intention of God that, to be their God and they would be his people, his very treasured possession. That's an entity in the new covenant for us because Jesus will see it through. He'll make sure it happens. He's the guarantee that that will come that we'll know Him, Jesus, prayed to His Father, and He says, I pray that they might have eternal life, for eternal life is knowing you and knowing uh, Jesus Christ whom you've sent, having a knowledge of God and knowing our sins are forgiven. So Jesus obeyed. He, He took the fault of the old covenant, which was the people being unfaithful, and He came to fulfill it, To be faithful for us so we trust in Him. So where is our assurance? We look to Him and His obedience and His faithfulness. Over the next week, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to begin to think about whether or not you've entered into this new covenant by faith in Jesus. Is He your hope? And as you do, I want you to ask yourself the question. The Scripture says that in the New Covenant, He will put His laws into my mind and write them on my hearts. How does that express itself in me? How, how, How do I know that the very law of God has been written in my mind, written on my heart? Do I see that? Watch this week for every indication that your heart is inclined towards the law of God. Not that you have it all memorized, but it's your desire to do it. Now the difficulty with us, of course, is that we have this mixed bagged heart. (laughs) Our heart isn't completely renewed, and thus we have sinful inclinations as well. But if someone who enters into the new covenant, they should also be fighting those sinful inclinations with this inclination of the very law of God written on our hearts. Jesus he do that. And we know that a day will come when our hearts will be pure, when we're in glory, and the only inclination of our hearts will be to glorify and enjoy Him forever. And then He says, I'll be their God and they shall be my people. During the course of this week, watch your life and ask yourself the question, how do I see God as my God? And how do I see myself as belonging to Him? It, it might come... And when you pray, you might begin to say, Oh, Father in Heaven, He's my God and my Father. I belong to Him, therefore I can talk to Him. I can ask Him for things. Oh, when certain things take place in the course of your life, and and by God's sovereign providence, a circumstance comes into your life that may be very good, and you look to Him and say, Thank you for that. Oh, He's your God. More telling may well be when a certain providence comes into your life that's difficult one that you're not so excited about, and you go, oh, God, you are my God, and you've brought this difficult circumstance into my life, but I know it didn't come here by accident. I, I know that, that you're my God, and therefore I don't have to fret this, I don't have to complain about this, but I can embrace this and walk through it in faith, because I know that you're my God, and I belong to you. And then ask yourself the question, do I know Him? And watch your life. To see all the various times when you realize, I do know God. Uh, you know, I know my wife, I know my husband, I know my children, I know my friends. I know things about them. I, I expect certain things from them. I, I, I know that I know them. And, and now as I walk through the course of my life, I realize I know God. I see Him at work. And I realize that's Him. And then watch your life and ask yourself the question, what does it mean in the context of my own life that I'm able to live in such a way that I know that God does not remember my sin? Do you live like that? Realizing that He does not remember your sin. What does that mean? And how does that impact you? Those things. Watch your life this week. How is it that God has written His law upon your heart? How is it that you belong to him? How is it that you know him? And how is it that you live knowing that he doesn't remember and count your sin against you? Let's pray. Father, I pray that I can take uh, that assignment, that biblical assignment, and watch my life this week. I pray for all of us. So I pray that you would inform our thinking and our watching that we can be more attuned in these days to the very fact that Jesus is our assurance, to the very fact that we look to him as our perfect mediator, as our perfect high priest, as our perfect sacrifice, going to the perfect place once and for all to make intercession for us and that he lives there. And so, Father, I pray And we can see clear that we've entered into this now new covenant in Him. Show us how it is that you've written your law upon our hearts. Show it is how you rule and reign in our lives personally as our God. Show us how we know you. Show us how to live as those whose sins have been remembered no more. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for mediating this better covenant. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction as you do. Remind you that elders are available to pray in the office area. So, Please take advantage of, of that situation if you have a particular... Uh, need, the response to the benediction is this one, I believe in Jesus, which is a profession of faith for you to say, I believe this, I believe that he is my perfect high priest, my perfect sacrifice, went to the perfect place, Uh, my assurance is completely in him, He's, he's obeyed God's covenant for me. And when you say amen, you're simply saying, yes, that really is true, please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, I believe in Jesus. Amen.